Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 7, Genesis chapters 6 and 7. Well, we spent all of our time last week discussing evil and where it came from and what role it plays in our lives. And I'm not going to review it because we need to move on. All right. So either get the CD or listen to it online at torclass.com if you think you want to hit the high points again. Rather, let's spend just a short time to finish up Genesis chapter 6 and the Lord's instructions to Noah about the ark. So open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6 and we're going to start reading at verse 14. Genesis chapter 6, we'll start reading at verse 14. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. You are to make the ark with rooms and cover it with pitch, both outside and inside, and here is how you are to build it. The length of the ark is to be 450 feet, its width 75 feet, its height 45 feet. You are to make an opening for daylight in the ark 18 inches below its roof. Put a door in its side. Build it with lower, second, and third decks. Then I myself will bring the flood of water over the earth to destroy from under heaven every living thing that breathes. Everything on earth will be destroyed. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives, with you. From everything living, from each kind of living being, you are to bring two into the ark, to keep them alive with you. They are to be male and female. One of each kind of bird, each kind of livestock, each kind of animal creeping on the ground, two are to come to you so that they can be kept alive. Also take from all kinds of food that are eaten, collect it for yourself. It is to be food for you and for them. This is what Noah did. He did all that God ordered him to do. We see an interesting... God principle set down in the detailed instructions for the ark. Nothing is left for Noah to do but to accept God's means of salvation for him and for his family by following its prescription exactly. Here we also see that even salvation is, in a way, a cooperative effort between mankind and God. God's role is to provide it. Mankind's role is to accept it by a means of our of a moral choice of our will. But as much as salvation is by grace, there are obligations that we have to God and some of it involves actions on our parts. Now Noah and his family had to begin by believing what God told them. First, that mankind was wicked and God would soon destroy them. Second, that there is a means of escape. Third, that that means of escape is designed by the Lord. And only that means is available to them. And fourth, 
Noah would have to act in order for his deliverance to come about. So it took great faith on Noah's part to take God at His word when the current circumstances sure didn't seem to indicate how such a thing could possibly take place. And it took effort. It wasn't simply a passive acknowledgement or an intellectual acquiescence. In Hebrew, the ark is called a teva. It's the same term used for the basket that baby Moses would be placed in centuries later. A teva is a a box-like craft. It's not the same thing as a boat or a ship. It's a, it's a device that is very simple. It's, it, it floats. It's rudderless. It's without a crew to operate it. The idea is that a teva is guided only by God's hand in providence and mankind is just a passenger. The ark is to be of gopher wood. A type of wood that's unknown to us. It was to be enormous by any standard. 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and almost 5 stories in height. Marine engineers calculate that it would have had a water displacement of about 43,000 tons. It would hold its precious cargo of life on three decks, have a skylight, and apparently one entry ramp in its side. Notice in verse 18 that four men with their wives may enter the ark. This is the sum total of humanity that will be saved. The number of humans who have been elected and set apart to restart life on the planet totaled eight. Eight is a number of great significance in the scriptures. Eight, appropriately for our story, is the number of redemption. And it will remain so throughout the entire Bible. Now notice that the entire sphere of animated life on land and in the air is to be brought aboard. Everything from lizards to birds. The entire matrix of life is to be saved as the catalyst for new life. Each species or or family is represented by one male and one female. This is the basic biblical family unit. All All else is unauthorized and it's a perversion. The concept that two males or two females can bond together in marriage into a family unit and from that even produce a new generation is recent. And it's not only man-made, it's rebellious. We see something else important. The basic divinely ideal family unit is defined as one male, one female, not one male, and several females. So even in the narrative of Noah's Ark, 
we get the God principle not only of marriage being a permanent bonding of male and female, but also a marriage being exclusive and monogamous. Now let's also use this episode to define another term. Food. I want to deal with this because food is such a wedge issue between the church and the Jewish people. And it even causes severe dissension within the church itself. Genesis 1, 29 and 30 explains what food is at this point in history. It says, Then God said, Here, throughout the whole earth I am giving you as food every seed-bearing plant, every tree with seed-bearing fruit, and to every wild animal and bird in the air and creature crawling on the earth in which there is a living soul, I am giving as food every kind of green plant. And that is how it was. Food for mankind and animals was plants. And plants alone. Now, did this mean that some animals didn't eat other animals and man did not eat meat at this time? No. Rather, it meant that God defined food as plants and therefore when animals or humans ate animals or other things, they were eating things that were not food. Not even fish was for food as of this time. Let's explore that a little bit. Noah was told to bring food into the ark for his family and for the animals. What is food? Food is what's appropriate as a source of nutrition for our bodies. The question that is larger, however, is who defines what's appropriate and what's not? What should be consumed as food contrasted with what might be but ought not to be consumed as food. God defined food in the first chapter of Genesis. However, man soon decided he preferred something else to be added to his diet. But to God's way of thinking, humans and apparently some animals began to eat things that are forbidden because they weren't Food. Look, can you eat dirt? Sure. Of course you can. And anyone who's ever had a child or a grandchild has probably watched on in horror as they gulp down a mouthful of dirt before you could stop them. You know why they ate dirt? Because it smelled pretty good. Apparently tasted pretty good. So why do you want to stop them? Because dirt isn't food. It's for growing food. Food, by God's definition, is not merely anything you can manage to shove into your mouth and swallow or anything that might taste reasonably good. That is the entire point of God carefully defining what his people may eat and may not eat in the law of Moses. God has carefully defined what food is and what food is not. 
eating food that is not kosher, so to speak, is to eat things that aren't food. Now, of course, Hebrew tradition has created a lot of rules and regulations on this subject, and much of it's of a very questionable nature. Rules have been created that seem to go well beyond the rather simple intent of what is proper eating as described in the Torah. But the bottom line is this. When the Bible uses the term food, it by definition means things that God has assigned for men to eat as food. Whether Old Testament or New, when Hebrew speaks of food, it only means kosher food because all else isn't food. You'll never see in the Bible the word kosher or authorized, not even clean, used as a modifier for the word food because it would be a redundant term. Food is only things that are divinely authorized and clean, ritually clean, and meant to be eaten. Okay. This chapter ends with the most important words there that Noah did everything that God told him to do. Let's move on to chapter 7. Chapter 7, page 7 in your complete Jewish Bible. Adonai said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you alone in this generation are righteous before me. And of every clean animal, you are to take seven couples. And of the animals that are not clean, one couple. Also of the birds in the air, take seven couples in order to preserve their species throughout the earth. For in seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth forty days and forty nights. I will wipe out every living thing that I have made from the face of the earth. Noah did all that Adonai ordered him to do. Noah was 600 years old when the water flooded the earth. Noah went into the ark with his sons, his wife, his sons' wives because of the flood waters. Of clean animals, of animals that are not clean, of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, couples, male and female, went into, into Noah in the ark as God had ordered Noah. And after seven days, the water flooded the earth. And on the seventeenth day of the second month of the six hundredth year of Noah's life, all of the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of the sky were opened. It rained on earth for forty days and forty nights. On that same day, Noah entered the ark with Shem, Ham, and Yefet, the sons of Noah. Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons accompanying them. They and every animal of every species, all the livestock of every species, every animal that creeps on the ground of every species, every bird of every species, all sorts of winged creatures, they went into the uh, went into Noah in the ark, couples from every kind of living thing that breathes. Those that entered went in, male and female, from every kind of living being as God had ordered them, and Adonai shut him inside. The flood was forty days on the earth, and the water grew higher and floated the ark so that it was lifted up off the earth. The water overflowed the earth and grew deeper. 
until the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water overpowered the earth mightily. All the mountains under the entire sky were covered. The water covered the mountains by more than 22 and a half feet. All living beings that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, other animals, insects, every human being, everything in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, whatever was on dry land, died. He wiped out every living thing on the surface of the ground, not only human beings, but livestock, creeping animals, and birds in the air. They were wiped out from the earth. Only Noah was left, along with those who were with him in the ark. The water held power over the earth for 150 days. This chapter opens with an invitation for the Baptists among us, an altar call. God says, Come, Noah, you and all your household, come into the ark. Now, Noah may have built the ark, but God prepared it all. And it wouldn't be the last ark of refuge that God would prepare. This was a very exclusive invitation that was issued. Only those whom God chose could come in. This invitation even included an RSVP. Noah had to respond. He had to act. Sitting and doing nothing was death. What was the dividing line between those who received the invitation and those who were denied, those who were chosen, and those who were not? One had to to be Sadiq, Hebrew for righteous. And God says that Noah was the only righteous man left on earth. Now if we pull this pattern forward a few thousand years, we find that God had prepared a final ark. Yeshua, Jesus Christ, is a safe haven for the righteous, the Sadiq. For that day when He pours out His wrath and He ends the world as we know it. Again. Joyfully I can tell you with full assurance that God does not destroy the good along with the wicked. That is a promise from Him. Now it is often said that the biggest difference between the ways of God of the Old Testament and the ways of God of the New Testament is that a man had to work to attain his righteousness in the Old Testament and the man of the New Testament receives it as a gift. Further, that it was good works that led a man to some undefined kind of salvation in the Old Testament and grace through faith that brings a man to a well-defined kind of salvation in the New. Well, we could spend many weeks talking about this, but I'm going to spend just a few moments to dispel some really horrible scholarship and anti-Semitic theology and replace it with the truth. It is true that whether one reads the works, the commentaries, the most ancient of Hebrew sages or the later ones, the rabbis, generally we do find a great emphasis emphasis is placed on doing God's commands. 
what is usually called works and legalism. But the reason for the Hebrews' obsession with doing, their motivation is far less a matter of gaining something from it than from obedience due to the overwhelming gratefulness as being one of God's chosen. When we first become believers and when we study the great Christian scholars, it is clear to us that grace is the key to our relationship with God. But it is also usually taught that grace is a New Testament era dispensation that was not available prior to the birth of Christ. And that righteousness granted to the worshiper completely unmerited and unearned is a New Testament concept. Hence we get this false proposition constantly put forth to us in our houses of worship that we must choose either law or grace. The idea being that if we choose to attempt to follow the law, the Old Testament, the way it is said that the Hebrews did things, well enough to earn or to merit our righteousness and therefore our place in heaven, but of course we'll ultimately fail, that's one way, or we can choose to have faith in Christ and by grace be 100% guaranteed of our place in heaven. Let me tell you something. Never, never, never does God set that choice before us in the Bible. That dynamic, that dynamic simply doesn't exist anywhere in the Scriptures. It is a man-made doctrine based on assuring that Jews are painted in a bad light and that they therefore stay apart from the Gentile church. Now just so you don't get the wrong idea, of course the only way to a relationship with God is unmerited grace, a free gift of God given by means of Jesus Christ. The fact is though, that Hebrews did not believe they could work their way to heaven. And they fully recognized that righteousness had to be a gift from God, that is, by grace. Because even the best of men weren't that different from the worst. If you enjoy challenges, I recommend you read a book by a fellow named E.P. Sanders, considered one of the great mainstream Christian scholars and thinkers of our day. And that book is called Paul and Palestinian Judaism because he does a, gr a groundbreaking study on what Judaism and therefore Paul was all about. What he meant by what he said. Now it's a daunting book to study, let me tell you. Because he brings extensive quotes into it from the Mishnah, the Zohar, and the Talmud to draw a picture of what he calls Palestinian Judaism. Though it's not the point of his book, he dispels many myths and ignorant accusations flung constantly against the religion of the Hebrews that usually accuses them of being a legalistic, work your way to salvation based faith. 
Now, since we're studying the time of the Great Flood, I'd like to offer as an example of this a quote from the Mishnah Rabbah. This is an ancient Hebrew commentary about why it was that Noah was saved, but the rest of the world wasn't. Now understand, this certainly is not the only Jewish view on this subject, but it's probably the most accepted. Also understand that we are reading from the writings of the same Hebrew men that Gentile Christian scholars say had no knowledge or understanding of grace, nor did grace even exist until after Jesus' advent. Now interestingly though, the very first use of the word grace in the Bible is not found in the New Testament Gospels. It's found in Genesis 6. Now listen carefully to an uh, excerpt from the Mishnah Rabbah Bereshit, that is, the Mishnah Rabbah commentary on the book of Genesis. It says this, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He delivereth him that is innocent. Yea, thou shalt be delivered through the cleanness of thy hands. And Rabbi Haninah said, Noah possessed less than an ounce of merit. If so, then why was he delivered? Only through the cleanness of thy hands. This agrees with what Rabbi Ababi Kahana said. For it repenteth me that I have made them and Noah. But Noah was left only because he found grace. Hence, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. In other words, when the rabbi said that Noah was delivered by the cleanness of thy hands, thy hands were referring to God's hands, not Noah's. Further, where it says that Noah only possessed an ounce ounce of merit, it simply is an expression that means Noah had very little merit in his life. So little that according to these rabbis, God didn't just repent that he made all men except for Noah. He repented that he made all men including Noah. So it is somewhat of a mystery, the rabbis thought, as to what caused God to save Noah over and against some other person or people. Their answer? Grace. Unmerited favor. Were they wrong? Did indeed God expect them to work their way to righteousness since we are, after all, in the earliest part of the Old Testament? Back in those pre-Jesus ancient days? Well, those leaders of the Hebrews didn't think so. And listen to this reference in Abraham that we're going to find later in Genesis 15.6. Then he, Abraham, believed in the Lord and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abraham trusted God. And so God says he will consider that trust as the reason to give the designation of righteousness to Abraham. That is exactly what happens when we trust in Jesus. The word that we use for this is grace. Noah didn't earn his righteousness. The rabbis didn't think he earned his righteousness. 
We don't earn ours. He and we simply receive grace. That part of the equation has never been any different from the beginning of the world until today. So it's high time that the wrong-minded Christian doctrine of demanding that we choose between law and grace be put to rest. That choice was never put to us by the Lord. The law was never a salvation document. From the beginning all throughout the Old Testament and right on to Revelation, grace has been the only way to a right relationship with the Lord. The Hebrews believe that just as we believe it. This dynamic was set up for the sole purpose of getting us to believe that. For the Christian, the Bible begins at the book of Matthew. The Old Testament is obsolete. The Torah is abolished. And the Jews were ditched by God in favor of the Gentile church. None of this is so. Now how often we've all seen pictures in the Bible... church books, even school books, of animals entering the ark two by two. Yet that's only half the story. Because when we look carefully at verse 2, we see that in fact only some animals are to come in in a single pair. Others are to come in in sevens. Seven pairs. Fourteen animals. Fourteen of each clean animal. But only two of the unclean animals are to be taken aboard the ark. However, uh, rather, here we are introduced to the concept of clean and unclean animals. In Hebrew, tahor, clean, tameh, unclean. Now, in our modern Gentile Christian church, a church that was long ago stripped of all of our Jewish connections, this concept of clean and unclean is kind of foreign to our minds. And we typically assign all sorts of fanciful and erroneous meanings to it, or we just kind of mentally bypass those words. In time in Torah class, we're going to carefully study the concepts of clean and unclean. And I promise you a wealth of understanding of God and the Bible and how the spiritual and physical universe operates as a result of that. Now, one example of our sad ignorance about clean and unclean is contained in the famous and excellent, I might add, commentary by Henry Morris called the Genesis Record. And there he explains that perhaps the clean animals were animals that God decided would be good for domestication and fellowship with man. And the unclean weren't. Not hardly. Any Jewish child could tell you exactly what clean and unclean is. Clean means ritually pure. Unclean means not ritually pure. In the case of animal sacrifices to God, only clean animals could be used. In the case of food, only clean animals could be eaten. In the sense of food common word that we use today for it's kosher. But the question comes, were these animals, or at least some of them, being loaded onto the ark for the purpose of being part of the food supply during their confinement in the ark? Were they brought on 
as food for human consumption. Well, up to now, the only suitable food for humans was plant life. Let me pause here for a moment and remind you what we just discussed is that the term food refers only to things that are authorized by God as edible. In other words, to give an extreme example, if we were discussing the benefits of dental floss, nobody would picture dental floss as a possible food source. At least I don't think you would. Conversely, if we were discussing food, nobody would ever include dental floss as a possible member of the food triangle. For any of us, food is what we can eat and that is meant for that purpose. So for a Hebrew, meat that is not kosher is not food. Ritually unclean meat... Now follow me here, this is so important for understanding the Bible. Ritually unclean meat is not forbidden food. It's just not food at all. So when the Bible speaks of food, it is in no way referring to things that work within the current range of normal and customary. And remember, the Bible is a Hebrew document written by Hebrews in a Hebrew cultural setting. This is so from Genesis to Revelation. In the case of Genesis and Noah, prior to the flood, food was only green plants. Animals weren't any more a candidate to be food than was a rock or a handful of dirt. Noah and his children weren't hungry for a nice juicy steak because meat wasn't food. Now man, at the time of the flood and back on to Adam, had not been given the concept of eating other living creatures as a food source. I have little doubt that those of the evil line of Cain, as they grew ever wicked, likely killed animals and even ate some of their flesh. But at that time, it was absolutely akin to cannibalism. But since God called Noah a righteous man, I also have no doubt that Noah and his family remained vegetarians. So, prior to the flood, to Noah... Clean and unclean simply meant animals that God had told him were suitable for sacrifice for those that weren't. Food was not part of the equation then. Now, which animals were clean in that era and which weren't? We can't be 100% certain. Many centuries into the future... God would give Moses a very comprehensive list of clean animals. We only know for sure that sheep, lambs, were clean in Noah's day because that's the only animal mentioned as being sacrificed, and that one by Abel. That said, it's reasonable to conclude that the classifications of clean and unclean stayed the same until the era of Moses. At Mount Sinai, the list of those animals suitable for sacrifice... uh, became harmonized with those suitable for food. So the animals, Noah, his wife, their sons' wives, are now safely on the ark, and then there's this solemn pause. 
a seven day pause before God pours out his devastation upon the world. I don't know if this was simply a practical thing to give Noah some time to accomplish some last minute details or if it was time for Noah and his family to contemplate what was about to happen. Perhaps it was time for those who were outside the ark to reconsider. Those who watched that man who they considered a religious wacko along with his kids build that enormous wooden vessel and then climb inside of it. Unfortunately, even those who may have reconsidered were too late. Some may well have received spiritual mercy from Adonai, but none would escape the horror of the deluge. They would have to watch everyone they love drown as they themselves also perished. In the very near future, this is going to play out again. And it is indeed a replay of the great flood, which we'll see in a minute. God's people will suddenly be removed by means of our heavenly ark, Yeshua, and then tucked away for safekeeping. And then as God pours His wrath out on the world for the final time, millions of non-believing people will suddenly realize God is real. Everything He told us about, everything He forewarned us about is true. But it's too late. Death will be upon them. There will be no escape. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 24. Let's look at Christ's own words to verify that what I just told you is in no way allegory. It's literal. It's very straightforward. Matthew chapter 24. We're going to read verses 30 through 44. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it starts on page 1255. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. All the tribes of the land will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with tremendous power and glory. He will send out His angels with a great shofar, And they will gather together his chosen people from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now let the fig tree teach you its lesson. When its branches begin to sprout and leaves appear, you know that summer is approaching. In the same way, when you see all these things, you know that the time is near, right at the door. Yes, I tell you that this people will certainly not pass away before all these things happen. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But when that day and hour will come, no man knows, not the angels in heaven, not the Son, only the Father. For the Son of Man's coming will be just as it was in the days of Noah. Back then, before the flood, people went on eating and drinking, taking wives, becoming wives. Right up till the day Noah entered the ark. And they didn't know what was happening until the flood came and swept them all away. It will be just like that when the Son of Man comes. There will be 
two women grinding flour at the mill, one will be taken and the other left behind. So stay alert, because you don't know on what day your Lord will come, but you do know this. Had the owner of the house known when the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you too must always be ready, for the Son of Man will come when you're not expecting Him. The end of mankind, or in Hebrew, kol yeyum, which means all existence, was just hours away as Noah and his family and that huge menagerie huddled together inside the ark. I'm not sure any of us can imagine what must have been going through Noah and his family's minds as they heard the frantic screams of their neighbors and friends and family knowing that they couldn't help them. You know, there's really very little detail about the flood itself. Yet there are a couple things we should take notice of and tuck it away for future reference. There's no doubt that numbers have great significance in the Bible. They can be literal or they can be symbolic and usually they're both literal and symbolic at the same time. Another aspect of the reality of duality. After the number 7, 40 is the second most used number in the Bible. It's usually used when a trial or a testing of some kind is involved. A period, it's like a period of probation. It can mark something that is going to be what we might think of as passing from one era to another era. The Hebrew, Hebrew see 40 as the age of wisdom. The Greeks saw 40 as the pinnacle of life. And it's from the combination of these two views that Christian tradition makes a generation equal to 40 years. Here in the flood account, we find that it rained 40 full days, that's 40 24-hour periods, and then it was another 40 days until the tops of mountains appeared and the window of the ark was opened. Jacob, called Israel, was embalmed for 40 days. Moses was on the mountain at Sinai and without food for 40 days. Jesus fasted out in the wilderness for 40 days before being tempted by the devil. You might find it interesting to know that, by the way, that where Yeshua fasted was Ophrah, which is now a West Bank Orthodox Jewish settlement that uh, some of you have been to. The twelve spies of the wandering horde of Israel on their exodus of Egypt who went to scout out the inhabitants of the land of Canaan did their job for how long? Forty days. In the book of Jonah, Nineveh was granted forty days for repentance to avoid obliteration. Forty days is the purification time required of a new mother when she gives birth to a male child. Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rivka. Moses led Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. Kings David and Solomon each ruled Israel 
for 40 years. We're going to see multiples of 40 years used. This is common Hebrew symbology. Moses was said to be 120 years old when he died. 3 times 40. A new mother is ritually impure for 80 days when birthing a girl child. 2 times 40. I can give you many more examples, but I, I hope you see this connection. It's all embedded in the Bible. Now, an item of interest often overlooked <clears throat> is that it was not simply 40 days of rain that caused the earth's oceans to overflow. We're told in verse 11 that the fountains of the great deep burst open and poured water from it as well. This great underground cavern, or perhaps network of caverns, that up to then had been filled with water, now spewed it all out onto the surface. Now, remember we've encountered this term, the great deep, before. Back in Genesis 1, we're told that darkness, spiritual darkness, hovered over the great deep. Could it be that this great deep being emptied of its water in order to judge the world with a flood was also being readied to someday judge Satan? Because in Revelation, we are told that at the end of the tribulation, Satan is going to be thrown into the abyss, the abusos, which is the same word that is translated the great deep. Could the source of the flood water and the place where Satan's going to be chained up for a thousand years be the same place? I think it is. Now verse 11 tells us that Noah was 600 years old when the rain began and even gives us the date the flood began at least in relation to Noah's life. It says it was in the second month of the 17th day of that month when the deluge started. Now there have been a lot of readings on exactly what's being said here. And the church has these varying ideas of whether this verse was referring to the 17th day of the second month of the Hebrew year or the 17th day of the second month of Noah's 600th year of life. Well, it's both. It is tradition that Noah was born on the first day of the first month. That is, in our modern terms, New Year's Day. Further, as we'll find in the next chapter, it was going to be the 27th day of the second month that the water subsided sufficiently for Noah and his family to leave the ark exactly one year. How can I say this is exactly one year? Keep one thing in mind. This wasn't a solar year, 365 days. This was a Hebrew lunar year. 12 new moons plus 11 days. Now, since the numbering of months, the beginning of the Hebrew year, was originally in the fall season, it's likely the flood began in what we would call today the first half of November. Well, once Noah and his family, specifically his three named sons, Shem, Ham, and Yafet, and all their wives were on board, this seven-day period passed, then the skies opened up from above, the water welled up from below, and then a truly remarkable thing happened. God closed the door on the ark. 
shut them in. What better picture of God's control over all things than He Himself closing that door? And thus at that moment sealing the fate of all the inhabitants on the world. Some to life, some to death. And keep always in mind that these events are recorded to give us the patterns that God operates by. They never change. If you want a much more satisfying way to understand the Torah and the whole Bible, stop asking the question that we've all been taught to ask. Why? Rather, look for the pattern. That will explain God's mind on the matter as much as He's chosen to reveal to us anyway. Well, verse 20 tells us that the water kept accumulating on the earth's surface until the highest mountaintops were 15 cubits, around 25 feet underwater. Now let's be very clear about what died and what lived through the flood. Verses 21 to 23 are to be taken as a whole. Verse 21 gives us the broad categories of what perished. Verse 22 gives us further details about verse 21. Verse 21 is not one category of things that perished, and verse 22 is another. We're told that all basar, all flesh, animals, mankind died. And in addition, birds, swarming things like mice and rats and lizards and snakes were drowned out. But this did not include fish or sea creatures. I know this because verse 22, particularly in the original Hebrew, is quite specific about it. It was that all that had the breath of life in them died. The neshema, what I termed the life spirit placed into living creatures was what died. Plant life did not die out. Plants don't have neshma. Further, it was those living beings that lived on the harabah, the dry ground, who perished. If it lived on dry land, it died. If it required an extended period of life on dry land, it died. Fish and other aquatic animals lived. Amphibians that could live in the water for extended periods of time lived. The rain lasted for 40 days and 40 nights, but the water kept increasing for a total of 150 days, even after the rain stopped. Because the abyss, the great deep, had not emptied itself of water. The only life, the only nefesh, living beings that remained on earth, lay in the belly of that ark. We'll continue this next week.